I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, I'm joined today by Cheryl Giovanoni, the CEO of the Girls' Day School Trust, a cohort of 25 independent schools that encourage girls to learn without limits, with alumni including Olivia Coleman, Helena Bonham Carter, Afua Hirsch, Miriam Magolis, and Dame Mary Beard, among many others, the Trust Schools looks to develop character beyond curriculum and individual progression for each of its students. With 19,000 students and almost 4,000 staff, the Trust has doubled down on its commitment to work with future generations of women who will change the world for the better for us all. Cheryl, welcome to Changemakers. Sounds like you've got a very, very busy job. Thank you very much, Michael. It's lovely to be here. I do have a very busy job, but it's a very exciting one too. Uh, that really gets me up every morning feeling very positive about the future. I bet. I bet. What a brilliant, um, what a brilliant job. We'll, we'll, we'll go into that. And I have to declare an interest because I'm, I'm a dad of two daughters. So so <laughs> I, I, I I really do spend a lot of time um, in my family talking about girls' education. But um, before that, I want to sort of start when I first met you because we were both working part of the WPP empire. Obviously, you were well above my pay grade in, in those days. You were the CEO of, of Ogilvy and Mather. And I, you know, and I always thought that this person sort of embodies this sort of the spirit of how to get ahead in advertising. Now, let's start with kind of like, you know, the journey from South Africa to advertising in terms of the early stage before we get into, into today's stage. Because I think it'd be great to get the context to introduce listeners a little bit more about who you are. Okay. I grew up in South Africa. I am South African by birth. And I started my career at Ogilvy, bizarrely, in South Africa as a secretary in the strategic planning department. I didn't go to university full time, although I wanted to. But my mother did not believe that girls should go on to university. And this Mm. was following having been hugely successful in my school career, funnily enough. Why did she think that? Well, and I was head girl of my school. Right. Every bit of Getting lots of potential suggested that I should go on and have a career. Her view was that girls should really prepare themselves for marriage and families, and mm. that was our role in life. Uh, so she sent me to finishing school, and you know where I was meant to get all those sort of skills that set me up to be a good wife. So I can lay a beautiful table. I know which side you know the port goes. I can arrange beautiful flowers, I can type, and I can do shorthand, importantly, because that was sort of the interim job while I looked for this, you know, illusory husband, mm. uh, all of which actually didn't really interest me that, <laughs> that much, so how, how, I've done that much later. How long did you know, that keep you happy for? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So um, I just thought, no, I think I want, and and it wasn't a huge rebellion, Michael. It was more a sense of something that grew over time, mm. that I thought there was something beyond the acceptance of what the sort of preconceived role of women in society right. was. Because so, so, I was going to ask, does, were those the kind of, I guess, the seeds that were were going to sort of, you know, be sown for later in terms of what you wanted for new generations of women in terms of your own experience? Oh, I think so. And I sort of had this notion that why, and I was one of four girls too, and I had this sort of notion of why boys were given all this opportunity and somehow girls weren't given the same mm. And, and there wasn't the belief that girls could achieve as much as boys did. So when I look back, I'm sure that that planted the seeds for the role I now have. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I sometimes think with these, these sort of formative years is that they leave, you know, you get to understand, especially in entrepreneurs and, you know, and I think you're a very entrepreneurial character, Cheryl, you know, sort of like, you know, you, you get to understand where the passion comes from. Also, you sometimes, you know, you find that that, that people really, you know, that it leaves them with with some, some negative connotations as well about how they view life and how they view progression. In terms of the balance sheet of that experience, in terms of what you bring into into your life today when you look back do you feel that actually it was the power or do you feel that actually there were things that even today you feel you might struggle with I think it probably was the driving force and I don't know that I struggle with that any longer interestingly because there is something about the connection with real purpose for me which means you struggle less with it Mm. and interestingly you know you mentioned my career in advertising and I think I I always was underestimated and somehow used that as a way to prove that actually I could achieve and prove people wrong in a way. So there's something mm. about the motivation to prove people wrong that I think is at the heart of what. Okay, so po- point to prove. Before we get into, we'll, we'll touch on the um, you know the big job in advertising, but but you also grew up in a country that was going through momentous change. You know, in in terms of the, your experiences growing up in a country like South Africa, what was the effect of that on you in terms of a, a, a country where you know, everything is changing in terms of your mindset and your experience. Uh, yeah, a lot of change, but not a lot of change during my adolescence interest, which you probably find quite surprising. Mm. But I think if you grew up in South Africa as a white privileged child, you were very much protected from the reality of what was going on around you. And I was born in the same year Nelson Mandela went to prison. Mm. And, you know, it was it was a police state and that was kept that information was kept from us. And I don't really have a sense of what that meant. Probably I didn't have a sense until I was probably 16 or 17 and becoming much more politically aware. And, you know, I'd always asked questions growing up, like why did the woman who looked after us when we went on holiday, why wasn't she allowed to be on the same beach as we right. were? So there was so there was a consciousness. I mean, I, I interviewed Kate Robertson, the founder of, of One Young World, and you know, and and of course, you know, her formative years were were the apartheid years, and and you know, and she speaks really compellingly about the kind of growing sense of consciousness when you suddenly start to question your privilege, you start to question the world around you. Do you think that that I suppose social justice commitment is something that? you bring with you today in terms of your your role in terms of looking at the education of girls and a more equal world? I, I think it very much is at the heart of what I believe is important, which is the world should be a more equal place. And there are always people who are suffering from discrimination and inequality. And if there is anything you can do to really focus on making a difference in a space that there is such huge potential mm. that that gives you, I think, some of the, the energy and the ambition to make a difference. And that's something we talk about a lot in our schools. You know, you have a privileged education in a GDST school, and that privilege means you have a responsibility to go on and make a positive contribution to the world. It's not just about making money or doing something you love. You have to think beyond that because mm. the privilege of education brings and- responsibility. And for listeners, GDST, Girls' Day School Trust, we're going to get on to that. Before before we just do, let, let's just 
let's just talk about my I can remember you in in your role as chief exec of Ogilvy and Mather and I I thought this is a person that's got it all you know that they've got <laughs> one of the biggest jobs in advertising they are at the helm of you know arguably the most successful marketing communications conglomerate in WPP this is where their journey will will take them and I was completely wrong why was I oh it's so interesting I was completely flattered to be asked to be CEO of Ogilvy and for all the reasons you've just said, I think I was lured into believing that it didn't get any better. And I got there and I had worked at Ogilvy before. So it was almost this perfect circle of having gone from being, you know, a a humble secretary in Ogilvy in Johannesburg and ending up 30 years later as the CEO of the biggest office in the whole network. It did feel like this was sort of a real pinnacle, but there was something about it that really just scratched. It, it, it was an uncomfortable notion that I didn't quite know how I could make a difference. I couldn't mm. work out. Why? What, what, you, you, you're empowered. You're at the top of the tree. What? I'm just sort of trying to sort of dig into what gets you to turn around and just, because, you know, when we wrote, Nick and I wrote, wrote Mission, we, we wrote a chapter which a lot of people comment on called Burn the Boats. And that is that to go forward, you have to turn, you have to go all in. You have to turn your back on, on the past, maybe even the past year to re create and do something completely different. It sounds to me like burn the boats is what you did, Cheryl. That's fascinating, uh, Michael, and quite insightful. I turned up at Ogilvy after having been, you know, a humble secretary 30 years before and felt incredibly flattered to have been asked to be the CEO. And there was there was something about the role almost from the start, which just didn't quite chime. I was struggling to work out how I could actually make a demonstrable difference. And you would think that given the position I was in, that should have been something that was perfectly possible. But I think a big multinational advertising agency that is part of a big multinational mm. communications company, one of the biggest in the world, it's very hard to affect meaningful change as an individual. And it's the sort of nature of the matrix that you get trapped in that I never quite found a way to move beyond and feel like I was having an influence. And I thought I could. I thought that there was so much change going on around us. And there was this disruption of advertising that we could really harness. But Mm. I think it's incredibly difficult to do that without a group of people who believe in the same mission and want to do the same thing at that exact point in time, that you, you, you almost need the magic of some kind of alchemy that can help you drive change. And that sometimes happens at surprising moments in your life and you can't always script them. And there mm. I was thinking I could script that phase and actually it ended up that I couldn't. You see, I, I went through a very similar sort of feeling about it. I, I was at Hill and Knowlton, which was part of the of the, the, the same family of companies. And then I worked for a, a, an independent firm, but I still had this, this sort of deep urge in inside that I wanted to empower myself, empower the future and take control of it and so I chose entrepreneurship you chose education let's let's talk about that fork in the road because I actually think you probably carried a lot of that enterprising spirit into the job but I could have been I'm sure I could have been interviewing Cheryl the startup to scale up story (laughs) instead of the educator but you've said yourself find something that you truly care about you found education tell us how and why so when I came out of Ogilvy I took a year out I just thought I needed to step back and actually find that thing 
that would give me the sort of mission I was looking for. And it's it's so interesting you say that, Michael, because what I did first of all was I I I went to work with a startup and somebody I really respected and who was trying to build a different a model of the kind of communications ecosystem, which I was really interested in. And I thought I could actually, this might be the thing. But actually what I learned quite quickly was all he wanted to do was sell the business back to one of the one of the networks once he'd grown it to a certain size. And I thought, well, that'll be a bit of a waste of my time if I mm, finish it where you started. And I'm going to end up exactly where I started. <laughs> and then out of the blue, and I really believe in serendipity, but but there's something about taking serendipity and doing something with it. And this brief came into an organization called WACL, which is Women in Advertising and Communications London. And, you know, it's it's an organization of, you know, senior women who are the movers and shakers of different sort of businesses, both client and agency side. And I looked at the brief and I thought there's something really interesting about this. They were not looking for somebody with an education background. They wanted somebody with a marketing and advertising background to really try and reinvent the reputation of girls' education. And I just thought I can do that. There's something about the importance of this job and the alignment of what I thought I did well with what they were looking for. So it was a real eureka moment. A eureka moment, was it, in your life? It was a eureka moment, but it wasn't as if I was, it wasn't about getting into education. It was finding something where I felt that the skills and talents I had and the sort of desire to do something there that made a mark, it, it felt like it was the right thing that gave me those ingredients. And um, um, would it be fair to say that that was the campaigner? You know, that, that actually what you'd found in that role was the, because, you know, I suppose, you know, you've said school is the launch pad for the rest of your life, but you didn't go on to become a teacher. You came on to become a campaigner for education. I'm just sort of thinking about the ingredients that create that part of your life. Yeah, and and I think the thing that really excited me about the GDST is I saw this latent potential and it didn't feel like it was a campaigning organisation. It felt like a disparate group of 25 girls' schools with this opportunity to create a movement. Mm-hmm. And I could see that. And I could also see it because when my daughter was 10 and we were doing the rounds of looking at uh, schools, she sat the exams at one of the GDST schools and she didn't go there. She went to a co-ed school. And when I was interviewing for the role, uh, the, the trustees who were interviewing me said, how could, we, how could we possibly hire a CEO who doesn't believe in girls' education? And I said, I do believe in girls' education, but you didn't convince me that it was the best possible education for my daughter. And that's what I want to help you do because there should have been no question that I put her in your school, but somehow you did not provide the compelling narrative that made me desperate for her to, to, to go to, to this particular school. Mm. Uh, And I let her choose a co-ed school and I should never have done that. And I can help you make sure that that doesn't ever happen again. Right. But I think you took on the role 2016 when you became chief executive of the trust. Just paint the picture of where the idea of education for girls, both specifically in in sort of um, single set schools, but just more generically in terms of girls in education anywhere. It's obviously very different now and it's spoken about very differently, partly because there are brilliant campaigners like yourself that have changed the narrative and changed the lens, if you like, in terms of the way that we look at it. But 2016 was presumably still you know still a sort of early early phase in this change where were where were we 
as a society when when you came into the role in terms of girls education and and indeed the kind of i guess the role of girls in society i don't think we were nearly as advanced as we are now however i think we were much more advanced 150 years ago when the gdst was started by four suffragists who believed that girls should be educated equally mm. Uh, and that they should have the same opportunities as their brothers. So there's just, for me, there is something about the reinvention of the original purpose of the organization that was there then and had the sort of burning mission. And it was almost as if that was the catalyst to remind ourselves where we had come from as pioneers, but also to then think about what the future of girls' education looks like. Mm. So for me, it's much, it's it's as important to look forward as it is to draw on the roots. So when you talk about the fact that 150 years ago, here, here was this fantastic step forward, that sort of indicates the kind of heartbeat nature of progress, doesn't it? In terms of sometimes you go forward, sometimes you go backwards, sometimes they're highs, sometimes there are lows. W- where are we today, do you think, in terms of where girls stand? Uh, I, you know, I, I am known as an eternal optimist, so I like to think we are making progress. And there are lots of statistics I can quote right now, like only 17% of, of people in the tech industries are females right now Mm. and that should be very different there are no more ceos right now of FTSE 100 companies than there were five years ago having said that i believe that there are so many positive indications of change particularly for this generation of girls and the way they are working and what they believe is uh, the role they are going to play in the future that i i think we are making huge progress i really believe we are so, so those positive indicators of change, what would you draw attention to? I would draw attention to the growing confidence of girls to believe that they can do anything, that there are no limits on what they can achieve. And we can certainly see that from the girls in our schools. We've just recently done a piece of research, which is hot off the press, which indicates sort of growing levels of confidence of girls in our schools versus Mm. girls in other schools. So there's just some evidence that actually when you focus on it and you create the environment you actually can start to move the dial. Uh, and I think, you know, there are, there, are, there, there are endless, for the very first time, you can see the number of role models, female role models, who girls can aspire to, who excite them. And you didn't see that very long ago. And I think mm. there was quite a movement everywhere in the media, in, you know, you just have to pick up a magazine at the moment. And just the, the level of, of sort of diversity, both you know, sex and lots of other things, you can just see a much more, much more of a focus on diversity than you ever have before. And I suppose these are some of the sort of the, I guess, the signals of progress. But you've also spoken yourself about the challenges, you know, social medias, girls being bombarded every day with perfect images of life, an obsession with with celebrity, many things that create almost impossible expectations on young girls. And those are, I, I guess, sort of continuing and to some degree accelerating problems. H- how do we solve them? I think you're absolutely right. They are accelerating problems. I think we solve them by talking about them. We have a lot of uh, work going on right now around things like pupil voice uh, in our schools. We do a belonging survey, which is all about this kind of, is this a welcoming environment? Do you feel safe? How do you empower those girls around you? I think they've got to be brought to the surface. They've got to be talked about. And we have to have a very broad conversation about those things that involves parents, that involves teachers, and that the girls are the heart of. 
Mm. because unless they are unless they have agency it's very very difficult having to make make a change but it's it's power of social media is something we all have to be very conscious of every day because it's it's not an easy problem for any of us to fix so, so let's turn to the girls day school trust i mean cause it's a phenomenal network of 25 schools um some of the best performing academic institutions in the country how, how, how do they work as a collective they were well one of the benefits of covid is just the incredible collaboration that has gone on across every single different layer of the organization in all sorts of ways the fact that it was almost a catalyst for the most incredible collaboration just to share best practice to be passing on how guided home learning could work at its optimal we were learning we were probably failing fast too but we were constantly building and the fact that we had this sort of critical mass around which we could experiment and drive things forward meant that the the network has connected like never before. And we actually talk about a family. A family is one of our values. And it was something that was most realized during the pandemic, bizarrely. Uh, And I think it also worked in terms of us connecting girls across the country. We had, you know, these these collectives, collaboration groups going on across every single subject and at every level of our school. So it really drove a very powerful way for us to work together and to move things forward. It worked really well and it's never worked better. Mm. I mean, you will know more more than most that, you know, private fee-paying schools are, are are under the microscope in terms of social equity and fairness. How do you see it in terms of the role of privilege and society and and, and how you would explain the, the broader value of the trust to the community. It's an area of huge frustration for me, Michael, because I think people are quite lazy in the way they think about independent education. And it's seen as a as a sort of a very binary thing. It's either state or it's independent, elitist and very privileged. And I'm not suggesting it's 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 not privileged to be in a GDST school. However, we have two academies. So of our 25 schools, two are state schools. And I think we sit at an interesting intersection between the state's sector and independent schools. We were born out of the assisted placement scheme. And I think our schools are very down to earth, uh, hardworking partnerships, often with their local state schools and schools in our community. And I do believe that our force for good extends to all girls. It is not restricted to privileged girls who can afford, whose parents can afford to have them in a private school. I think our role, again, part of our purpose is to make sure that we are thinking and working with as many girls as possible. And, you know, one in five girls in a GDST school is on some form of bursary. So, you know, we have a very mixed community and we have lots of really powerful partnerships. So I do see I do see our role as being one that is an important part of the sort of whole education mix. And I um, I suppose part of my campaigning is about how that feels like something that comes to the formal because it, mm. it, does, it is a, a force for change and a force for good and all girls should benefit. Yeah, I mean, well, let me throw you another hot potato. I mean, all girls should benefit 100%. And I can remember being at a dinner where I was supposed to be chairing it and you and I were sat next to each other. And that that conversation was completely persuasive to me in terms of sending 
two girls to girls' schools. Now, I wonder how I would have felt if I'd been a dad to a son and a daughter or two sons. And in terms and, and as you'll know, is that, you know, single sex education have has its great fans, but also its great detractors. In terms of how you create cohesion and how you create mutual respect, how do you do that if you're delivering a single sex environment? Well, one, one thing I truly believe is that our schools are not, we don't lock girls away. This isn't a nurturing environment where girls are not part of a broader community. And a lot of our partnerships are with co-ed schools. We happen to have real expertise in the way girls learn, but all of our schools work as much with local schools where there are boys as they do with girls, uh, schools where there are girls. And you know, that is encouraged. But one of the, one of the pieces of evidence uh, that is very clear is that girls learn differently to boys. There's very good evidence to suggest they do and that they are more likely to take STEM subjects if they are in a girls' school. They are much more likely to continue to play sport when they are teenagers uh, and they are much more likely to go on uh, and Mm have, you know, a successful university career and for their confidence to grow over time. So there is very, and, and, you know, they are not locked up. They have lots of access. They have brothers, they have friends, but why not have a period of their lives where everything is utterly geared towards their learning Mm. and experience, which actually helps build their confidence and gives them that, that kind of platform for, you know, their futures. And, and, and you've spoken about that future is about learning without limits, that, that actually this kind of almost like this limitless future, this abundant potential. And, you know, and I, and I get very excited about, you know, the world in which, you know, my, my young girls are growing up into. I mean, I mean how, how, how do you feel about the future, Cheryl, when, you know, I mean, obviously we're, we're living in a slightly gloomier period right now. But when you look at the sort of the long term journey for young girls turning into young women and, and, and the future that they might go on to inherit, how, how do you see it? I, I think it's an incredibly positive future for women because the world needs the skills women bring more than ever before. You know, collaboration, problem solving skills, networking, entrepreneurial skills. Those are all things that women really uh, excel in. And you, know, you often see that figure, 28 trillion dollars would be added to the world economy if there was equality and opportunity for women. You know, we are a powerful accelerator of progress if the the sort of potential were to be unleashed. And in a country like this, there are no excuses for not unleashing that potential, particularly now because of the the cost of living crisis, the long-term outlook looking quite depressing in some respects. Women have an incredibly vital role to play and could be the single most important change maker of of that world Mm. and and of course central to that is leadership and you know it's something that you've spoken about a lot as it pertains to to your students you are a leader a lot of the girls that went through the school have gone on to, to take on incredible leadership positions leadership in terms of how you see it and how you see the ongoing changes that we're going through. What are the leaders of the future, do you think? What's going to make a good leader? I think the leaders of the future are good listeners. They are they have as their one of their ultimate goals has to be to serve. And I think often leaders forget that it is about the people you serve that makes you a great leader, not mm. 
about just sort of lead. I think you've got to be good at leading from the front and leading from behind and taking people with you, but listening and connecting is probably one of the most important things that leaders today could be doing. I read three good C's that you brought into this, cooperation, collaboration, and courage. I thought those were a pretty good, pretty good trio for, uh, for what you might want from a leader of the future. Yeah, I think that those probably sum it up pretty well. Last question, Cheryl. If I could take you back to that young girl going to finishing school, looking at the life that you've had, what what would you tell yourself? What's the advice you'd give yourself if I could get you in a time machine and take you back to that first day? I would probably look back and think how absolutely privileged I've been to play just a tiny part in history that I never thought I would have the privilege of doing. You know, I feel like in this role, I can make a difference every day. And that, you know, I feel incredibly lucky, actually, to have been given this opportunity. Honestly, I feel incredibly lucky to have this job and I never take that for granted. Mm, What a wonderful journey. Cheryl Giovanoni, thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaigns firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating? Just be